welcome to the 24th episode of the Strangely Dangerous Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Lenora. Uh, this is the first episode in our series on World War One. I. I know we've been teasing it for a while. Uh, we're finally doing it, and... It's happening. And oh, boy. we did a lot of research, <laughs> and we're still not ready for the whole series, so this is going to be fun. Yeah, we just mostly wanted to have the first one out for uh, Veterans Day, uh, just because... Like, Veterans Day is an important day for, like, us here in the U.S., but also this time of year is also super-duper important for um, Britain and France as well as the other countries that were involved in the conflict, as it is a big day of remembrance. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to have it out for that day because it is it was primarily for remembrance of World War I. Um so, and again, we, you know, we've mentioned before, we think this is kind of an understudied war. Um, I mean, we went to bookstores and libraries, and there's like five or six books here and there on World War One, and then like three or four entire shelves on World War Two. And it's like, don't get me wrong, World War Two is interesting and important and good to study, but like, World War One is hella important too so we, we just thought it would be nice to talk about this uh for this time of year yeah we spent quite a bit of time in the library and in coffee shops researching for this topic we read a couple of books so I, right at the top i just wanted to name off kind of the three books that we're taking from in this episode again towards the end of the series we're going to put probably find some blog website or something we'll link to it on our instagram um where we have our complete um, bibliography, and I'm going to go through the painstaking process of doing an annotated one, just so you can see what kind of sources we used, and also see that we did put thought into the sources that we used as well. Yeah. So for today, uh, Lenora started with The First World War by John Keegan. Um, I've already ruined the spine of this book. <laughs> oh yeah, it's and you heavily annotated it. Um I used The Guns of August by, or excuse me, The Guns of August, The Outbreak of World War One, by Barbara W. Uh, Tuchman, Tuchman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N. Um, and then I used a little bit, like, just a couple pieces here and there from How Chance and Stupidity Have Changed History, The Hinge Factor by Eric Dershmead. Uh So those are kind of our three sources at the moment. We have more. There's a big pile over there. Honestly, I think Barnes & Noble started <laughs> carrying more books about World War One after we started buying books about World War One. <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah. A lot of our local bookstores didn't ha- don't seem to have a lot of World War One books, so we had to go to Barnes & Noble. We had to go to the library. Um, and, again, not that much. There's not that many. Yeah, well, and also I think it's, like, one of those things of the historians that cover World War One is, like, most of them are super acclaimed individuals that most people are just like, we can't do any better than them. While, like, when you look at all the source material for World War Two, like, there's so much out there and so many things that happened. And, like, honestly, World War One has a bunch of stuff that happened, too, but it's also very complicated while with... World War Two, it's a little bit more straightforward um, yeah. in terms of tracking the events and who's who and all the different diplomatic yeah. 
with um, World War II, it starts the water start to get muddy with like the conspiracy crowd and like the people that just. I mean, it had one of the most fascinating figures in history, and fascinating in sort of a morbid way, but, like, in Hitler, and how many books are there on Hitler and about Hitler, about his psyche? Did Hitler eat potatoes? And it's, like, an 800-page book. Like, I I don't know if that's a real book or not, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was, because he is... There's probably, at the very least, an academic paper about it, just because historians are weird. Probably. We, We choose abstract things but also sometimes it's just like you're trying to find something new and something that's been covered at nauseum and so it's just like sometimes you do end up researching yourself into a very strange corner where you're focusing on hitler's dietary habits and how it might have influenced his decision making process who knows like that's honestly something a historian would do just because it's a completely different topic and if there's source material for it why not yeah but uh, the point being, there's not a lot of that with World War One. We thought it was super important. It's super fascinating to us. And let's be honest, um, Sabaton released an album about World War One, and we really like that album. So yeah. uh, those are kind of some of our influences there. Um, but in today's episode, we wanted to do some setup uh, for. I mean, this is the most consequential and influential if not, like, one of, if not the most consequential and influential events in world history. And it's incredibly important for basically the whole chain of events of everything else that happened in the 20th century up until this point. Yeah. And, like, we thought it was important to do some setup and go back in time because things this big, they just don't happen in a vacuum, and they also don't go away. Um, You know, like you just were saying, like, it shaped the 20th century and even the 21st century there's still stuff to this day that we're ironing out that took place in world war one or as a result of world war one it's crazy how many tendrils this has i mean this whole first episode like full disclosure there's going to be a lot of yada yada yadaing of older stuff because Every event that led up to and set the stage for World War One could be its own 10-episode series, if not its own entire podcast series. And then you get to the actual, <laughs> like, okay, here are the days before war was declared and all this stuff. That each day could be its own episode. So there's a little bit of yada 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 but we try and hit the important points and we try and get the point across. In further episodes or later episodes, if we need to go back and reference something, um, we'll go give more detail to those things. But as of right now, there's a few things that we're kind of like for time. Otherwise, it's going to be like a five-hour episode and five episodes before we even get to, okay, they declare war. <laughs> war is declared. Well, especially when we get into the the crisis of 1914, it's very dense and a lot of events happened within a month period of time in a lot of different places and there's a lot of moving parts. And I do think part of the reason why it's not covered that much is because it's very complicated and honestly is oversimplified. Um, Because I remember when I went to the Smithsonian on my 8th grade DC trip and my civics teacher, we were in the the American History Museum and we were in the the, going through an exhibit about all the um, 
wars that America had been part of. And so we were standing in front of World War One, and I didn't know anything about World War One, So I was just like, hey, Colin, like, what was World War One? And he was like, well, it was a bunch of treaties and that's it. Right. And yeah. it's just like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, th- honestly, like, it kind of makes me mad that he just kind of summed it up that way. Because without World War One, you would not have World War Two, And without World War Two, you would not have the Cold War and all the proxy wars yeah. that happened from it. You don't have the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union. You don't have 9-11, the war on terror. Um, and to some degrees, you wouldn't have certain... Um, important cultural moments and um civil rights movements that happened as well uh because while the war was happening there was the suffragist movement going on in the u.s as well as um around the same time in britain i believe as well but you also it sets up the stage for essentially the perfect storm that created the civil rights movement as well and so like without world war one you might not have had that happen at that time either yep so it's, it's, I mean, and probably later we'll reference, you know, towards the end of the series, we'll kind of reference, like, there's a lot of pop culture that doesn't happen and American culture that doesn't happen and develop the way it has. And so, and we'll mostly focus on the positive things. <laughs> I'm sure a few negative things will pop up here and there that are important. But um, like I said, this is one of the most important world events. Um, so... Yeah, like the, the funniest way that I think we've seen it where I think it was probably in history memes on Reddit, where it's just like how you got hentai from Archduke Ferdinand being assassinated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. It's like we, we were going to start. We jokingly wanted to start the series with like imagine yourself in a, you know, VR helmet in your house watching hentai. And it's like hold up how did we get here and then like rewind but you know it's a podcast we can't really do that it's not film because here's the fun thing japan was involved in world war one yeah <laughs> not a ton but not they were there ton, but they were there and they played a part before world war yeah but i'll get to that so without further ado um let's hop in this time machine and let's go back to the 1700s so this goes back further um, than the 1700s, but we're going to start there because if I, if we really wanted to, we could start at the beginning of recorded human history and go, here's how these dominoes were put in place that fell to make the... We're going to start at the 1700s. European history is very long and there's a lot of wars. <laughs> yeah. We're going to start at the 1700s. This stage that's being set for World War One goes farther back than America does as a country. So, sorry, the United States of America as a country. We're not going to get into that muddy water. Anyway, so the 18th century, it was very bloody. Uh, There's some primary large conflicts that I wanted to mention. There's the Spanish secession from 1701 to 1714, the Austrian secession from 1740 to 1748, and the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763. You know, those are kind of just like the main ones. Towards the end of the 18th century, there's the French Revolutionary War, which then kind of folded into the Napoleonic Wars, which lasted until 1815. That's just the big ones. So all these 
There are winners and losers. There's large numbers of dead young men, changes in power, changes in borders, resources, wealth, prosperity. When someone loses a war, a large battle here and there, they become angry. It's a hit to their national pride, to the royal family's pride. They pass those bruised egos on to the next generation of rulers, and so on. There's also a lot of inbreeding, a lot of royalty being moved here and there, and then like how they're all connected. I actually I didn't get into it as much as some of my sources do, but like how the British royal family essentially um, they referred to the king as the uncle of Europe because. He had relatives in every European country who were in power. It's just kind of how it was. They're all interrelated. And yeah, it's all, again, it's so complicated. I go off on a whole tangent about that. And we need a chart. Yep. I'm going to try and stay on course here. So we arrive in the 1800s with the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon fought in five main conflicts against the third through seventh coalitions of European countries. It's really complicated how the coalitions formed, and they were, you know, one day Prussia is an ally of Austria, the next time they're fighting against Austria, it's it's a whole thing. So, bunch of countries fighting France, France fighting a bunch of different countries. France versus everyone at some point. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> Napoleon is widely regarded as one of the greatest military leaders um, in history. He swiftly and decisively defeated the third through fifth coalitions. Uh, after his many victories, he made the grave mistake of engaging Russia in a ground war in 1812. What do you never do? Invade Russia in a ground war. Ever. Don't. Particularly in winter. Yeah. But even <laughs> do it in the summer. It's not like it's going to be over anytime soon. Well, yeah, Russia's it's fucking so big. huge. So, uh, Russia handed Napoleon his ass due to several different logistical issues and the fact that Russia's fucking giant and fucking cold. Like, inhospitably cold. We just watched a video the other day about the coldest city on Earth in Russia. Which I weirdly want to go to. It's like negative, what was it, negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah. Like, you can't, like, wear knits or anything like that. You have to wear fur. Yeah. So if you're vegan, don't go there. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> anyway, after this defeat... The Sixth Coalition formed. The Sixth Coalition defeated Napoleon and exiled him in 1814. Napoleon escaped exile, took control of France again, and then fought the Seventh Coalition that was formed after they found out he escaped and took back France. So, Napoleon famously lost for the last time at Waterloo in 1815. He's exiled again. He dies a few years later in exile. So I know I just yada 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 uh over the Napoleonic Wars, but that's the TLDR. You know, too long to read. The important part is that Napoleon was great at making enemies. He was also great at uniting unlikely allies against him. These ties made during the Napoleonic Wars would help shape the political climate that could lead to war at the magnitude of World War I. These wars led to redrawn borders, rise in liberalism and nationalism, independence movements in Latin America, the decline of the Spanish and Portuguese empires, the reorganization of Germany and Italy into larger states, civil war and methods of, and uh, new methods of warfare, including staffing schools and training schools, war planning, things like that, that Lenora will get into in a little bit. Um, so from what I could find, and this is just 
this was a kind of a surface level research. There was a total of 71 noteworthy wars or conflicts or revolutions in Europe from 1800 to 1914. It's a bloody century. This doesn't include all of the European conquests on different continents throughout the world that resulted in increased wealth, military might, and jealousy. That, like, a lot of that has doesn't include what Britain was doing, what, you know, America was doing, what Canada was doing, what Latin America... It, a lot of those 71 conflicts don't really count other parts of the world. It's just kind of like... Mainland mm, Europe. Yeah, mainland Europe. Um, but point being, that's still a super bloody century. Uh, the constant fighting, oppression, rebellion, secession, expansion, industrialization... It was bruising a lot of egos in Europe. A lot of people were suffering, and a lot of diplomats were getting salty. Um, a war of note early in the 1900s that is very important to cover here because it sets up a lot of different little things. And it also sets up Japan's involvement. Yeah. Uh, so this is the Russo-Japanese War. In the early 1900s, Russia was looking to expand its empire, and they primarily wanted warm water ports they always want warm water ports because again <laughs> negative 90 much. degrees fahrenheit before modern ice breaking ship technology and and before like modern submarines that could be in those temperatures and things like that you got ice locked for who knows seven how <laughs> eight months out of the year if you had a really bad winter uh that's not good for military might that's not good for trade that's not good for anyone so they want a warm water port so to find these ports russia moves south to china japan on the other hand wanted to expand their empire their empire and create their own sphere of influence in asia sphere of influence is something that like i've heard said several times it was just a popular term at the time well it's kind of like how you have the U.S. take their stance that they're going to be the protector of the Americas, basically, of both, um, like, North and South America from other influencing powers. And so, the Monroe Doctrine, right? Yeah. And so, it's kind of the same concept, and they, honestly, they probably got it from us. Uh, <laughs> well, the... But it's kind of the same idea of wanting to have that sphere of influence over other countries like in in guns of august i was reading a lot of she mentioned sphere of influence a lot when it came to different european countries for mm -hmm. instance which we'll get into later austria hungary and their sphere of influence they were basically taking all the slavic states because they were like we hate the slavs and we want to oppress them but we also want this land and the labor force and we want a bigger empire so we want to create a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. That was kind of like that. That's a term I heard a lot when researching mm -hmm. World War One. Um, so, in Japan's quest for a sphere of influence, uh, they started to move into Korea and into mainland China. Now, Russia saw, um, or excuse me, Japan saw Russia as a rival and a threat to their plans for expansion. Russia saw Japan as a threat to their new uh, warm water ports and their trade throughout Asia. Japan wanted Russia to recognize Korea as part of their expansion in exchange for them recognizing Russian ownership of Manchuria, which is like in China, essentially. 
um, Russia tried to propose a buffer zone between the two expanding empires north of the 39th parallel in Korea. Japan did not like that idea because there was a lot of different compromises. I'm kind of simplifying this. There's a lot of negotiations and back and forth between the two countries. On February 9th, 1904, Japan surprise attacked Russian fleet in Port Arthur, China, uh, and, you know, just pulled a surprise attack, sunk some of their fleet, and that was the declaration of war, which sounds like foreshadowing for some time later in history. Um, it sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. And possibly why Japan started it again was because how this went. Uh, Russia fought hard, but uh, they were clearly fighting a losing war. Japan, at a certain point, was just like kicking their ass left and right because Russian leadership was incompetent. They weren't prepared for this war. They didn't really mobilize troops all that well. Well, and also you have the issue of, like, since Russia's so big, you had to move troops from the more populated western um, parts of Russia over to the east where there's less of a population to Mm -hmm. even get any fighting force. Meanwhile, Japan's, like, right there. It's a boat right away. (laughs) Good soldiers... You have to move them through China, things like there's, There's a whole bunch of other issues. But basically, um, Japan Japan's kicking their butt. So Japan offered a peace treaty after a few months of war. Obviously, it's not the most favorable peace treaty. But they're like, hey, we're going to kick your ass one way or the other. So uh, why don't we just stop this fighting and you give us what we want? Russia said no. Tsar Nicholas, he had a bruised ego. Um, he wanted to fight for his pride at that point, so they fought harder and fought longer, and they still lost. Uh, so he refused the deal, continued fighting. Something that happened during this war, this is from How Chance and Stupidity Changed History by Eric Dershmead. He talks about a story, uh, and to give background, during this war, there were two Russian nobles who, in the system of Russia's government, were given leadership status as divisional commanders because in Russia, if you were rich, you led the military, which is why they weren't super great. There were some good commanders and generals and things like that, but not all of them. Yeah, it's where your uh, aristocratic status gave you military status, and like those are things that don't... There's a Venn diagram, yeah, and it's the crossover is not huge. <laughs> yeah, it's, like there are some where they're both. Sometimes it works great, <laughs> but it's not a perfect system. Um, so these two were Alexander Samsonov and Pavel Ronenkov. Samsonov's men were ordered to defend the Yentai coal mines in Manchuria, and Ronenkov was told to back them up if they needed help. So Japanese troops march in, they attack Samsonov's men, handily defeat them. Meanwhile, Ronenkampf just stood by and watched, because they didn't care for each other. They had two different leadership styles, they had two different personalities, they didn't really like each other. So Ronenkampf was like, meh, fuck them, and just kind of let them get slaughtered. So uh, several days later, the two met 
by chance at a railway station, Samsonov approached uh, Ronenkampf. He removed his gloves and slapped Ronenkampf in the face. The two began fighting. They wrestled in the dirt. And then they requested to settle it with a duel because that's how nobles in Russia settled it. But that's really how most aristocrats in um, the 19th century did like finish stuff and then that semi-carried over into the 20th century, but most governments were like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> but because these were two of his higher-ranking military men and uh, they're in the middle of a war, uh, Tsar Nicholas was like, no, you can't settle this with a duel, just suck it up, which was kind of a bad move. Uh, now, among the foreign delegates who witnessed this fight was Germany's Captain Max Hoffman. Now, he'll play a part in a very decisive battle of World War I, but that's for a bit later. But he, remember, he witnessed these two don't get along. And this is, again, part of why Russia is losing the Japanese-Russo War. They have just incompetent leadership, people who just, hmm, I'll, we'll lose this battle just because fuck that guy. Like, you're on the same side, but you're just like, eh, right? That doesn't make for a very successful military. So on September 5th, 1905, the war came to an end with both sides signing the Treaty of Portsmouth. Uh, that was mediated by the United States. The war was beneficial for Japan. They gained land, influence, respect, and confidence. Again, going back to their tactics worked. So why wouldn't they try that again in the future? Well, it's also, this is one of the first times in which Japan's also recognized by the West yeah. and European powers as well, yep. which is something that was very important to them. And when we get to the end of the war and get to the Treaty of Versailles, we'll find out how they were slighted and... Why they're mad. And the bitterness that followed. Yep. So Russia, on the other hand, uh, they've been given a black eye. They were humiliated by Japan. Several European powers lost respect for them. Some of their allies lost territory while Russia was licking its wounds and unable to come to their aid. Most notably, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, their people lost confidence in the government in Russia. Uh, excuse me, the Russian people lost confidence. Um, so, Bosnia and Herzegovina were absorbed by Austria. And... According to my sources, Austria goes and takes these two. Russia started to uh, mobilize troops to defend them because, like, hey, those are our Slavic brothers. We have to help them. And Germany kind of stepped in and went, hey, you'd better not or else. And Russia went, okay, fine. And, again, majorly oversimplified, but kind of the long and short of how those got absorbed into Austria-Hungary and how that created bad blood in that area um so late in 1905 workers began strikes peasants held an uprising there were military units that mutinied in russia this was the first russian revolution which resulted in the creation of the state duma which is a representative in their government for the lower classes the military party system a parliament and the russian constitution of 1906 the, star, the Tsar was still in power, but not to the same capacity. 
which is one of the pieces of the puzzle of how World War One came to happen. He, you know, even though he's in power, he doesn't have final say over everything. The military is moving more into the government. The the people, even though they have a representative, doesn't do as much as the military does. So it it just sets up this volatile um, climate in Russia and this public outcry for what's happening to their Slavic brothers elsewhere and it's just it also sets up ultimately how they even start planning for war just because of how decimated they were but we'll we'll get to that in a moment because I want to go over essentially a lot of the changes in war planning that happened because we did mention that from the Napoleonic Wars um came essentially a major shift in how war planning happened and it was primarily due to other military leaders seeing how knowledgeable and um, efficient um, Napoleon uh, Napoleon's generals and military staff and basically everyone who was in his military was. Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, we need everyone to have that kind of expertise. Like, we, we yeah. need to do that. And so that gave birth to staffing colleges, which is where... Um, military personnel would be trained and engage in uh, mock battles and war games and practice strategies and they were ultimately encouraged to think like future generals especially because you start having a little bit more mobility in the military and it's not solely something where like you just buy a rank yep exactly Uh, you actually have some career pathing (laughs) and so and also, like, you never know when, like, you might be put in charge of something. And so, like, they pretty much trained everyone like that. Um, and also with the staffing colleges, you there's also a transition to abstract war planning, which was basically making up a bunch of war plans for imagined scenarios. Because before, most... It's, it's like what you do in the shower. Where you're <laughs> just like, at least for me, that maybe there's a guy thing, but it's like... If I'm ever in a grocery store and someone, like, tries to rob the store with a knife, I would totally jump over the counter and beat him up. But in real life, I'd just be like, oh, no. Well, to some degree is when I start really getting into playing Civilization Six, I just come up with my plan while I'm trying to go to sleep. Yep. Yeah. Um, but with the abstract war planning, you're making military plans for imagined scenarios. Um, and part of that was the result of the uti- utilization of railroads in planning um, because they needed to know the timetables of like how long it took a train to get from city A to city B and you know all of those math problems you absolutely hate in like fourth grade. Um, it's traveling at this speed. When will it get there? Basically, they had that down to an art uh, <laughs> because it was very important in terms of mobilization. And, um, but the way that war planning was before this point was basically you made your strategy as you went. And so it was based upon what was happening in the war, the political climate. It was all based upon those things and like spur of the moment. You didn't make your plan ahead of time. You made a plan the moment you found yourself in a war. Mm -hmm. Um, because you insulted somebody at dinner. Like, (laughs) yeah, um, it wasn't something that was given a bunch of forethought like you might have had like some generic planning but at this point you really start to see like very complex 
thought out war plans and to some degree thought out too much or seated in wishful thinking. Um, And so that was a huge change. And then you also have essentially the disconnect between like diplomats and the military because diplomats, unlike the military, were trained um, in the art of uh, diplomacy within the embassies. They didn't have like a staffing college of their own because for the most part it was kind of like a family business thing mm-hmm. um you knew someone who knew someone who got you into a uh, a diplomacy type role yeah. and a lot of like the diplomats especially when there's you know the russian and french diplomats in germany they live in a certain area and they socialize a lot and they're good friends you yeah, know like they all knew each other exactly uh, if not were related to each other yeah they're all perusing and schmoozing each other all the time if that's the right phrase and so it's kind of like there's still this old war diplomacy um way of going about um keeping the peace between countries like that's not necessarily a bad thing and it certainly wasn't really the cause of war because these diplomats even though like they did prioritize the um interests of their countries ultimately didn't want any armed conflicts like they wanted to keep the peace yeah um but in this case ultimately military influences did sway them quite a bit and we'll we'll see that later um but while diplomats did stay in contact and told each other things the militaries however did not necessarily communicate between branches and guarded their plans Mm -hmm. there's huge amounts of secrecy between the different branches of the military and even the different branches of governments within basically all the country all country all of the countries involved in world war one um with the exception of britain france and uh, later america because the way that our government systems are there's less secrecy yeah like not to get too far ahead but basically when germany was getting ready to mobilize for war there was a a moment where kaiser wilhelm was kind of like hmm maybe we could move troops around this way and uh his top general molka which we'll get into in a minute molka the younger We'll, yeah, we'll talk about we'll that. We'll get into him. But he basically was just like, nope, there's no way that's even possible. Well, at the time in Germany, the railway system was part of the military. Because they didn't communicate and Moltke spoke for them, after the war it came out and like the commander of the railway stuff heard about it, he published a paper because he was so pissed. He was like, I'll tell you exactly how I could have moved these troops around, done all these things. Don't tell me it's impossible. We would have been amazing. We would have done it. He was so offended that Molko was like, they can't do that. We can't change anything no. because they're not capable. And he was like, how dare you? But because they didn't actually communicate, uh, well, Kaiser also, Wilhelm... Molko was very in love with the Schlieffen plan. Yeah, but, <laughs> but because there was no communication, Kaiser Wilhelm just kind of took Molko at his word. So anyway sorry yeah, not to get like, too ahead but and it's also something that i'll get into as well because there's like a huge part of this is the fact like there's a huge break in communication between yeah. all of the various actors between the diplomats between the military between the heads of government there's a huge disconnect and that's kind of where like we'll see a lot of sabotage and just kind of decisions made on 
just not knowing shit because no one told them. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and so with the abstract war planning, um, the most important plan um, of all the abstract war plans that were made in the early 20th century was the Schlieffen plan. I did just mention that one. It's phenomenally important. Um, it's named after its creator, Alfred von Schlieffen, who served as Germany's chief of staff from 1891 to 1906. Like the consequences of the enact of this plan can still be felt today and it's one of the most important documents of the Great War as well as the 20th century just because it it's the reason <laughs> um, World War One essentially became such a war of attrition yeah. and such a bloodbath ultimately is because of this stupid yeah. plan <laughs> and yeah and because like you said they, they made up this imaginary fight where they went oh we're gonna do this thing we're totally gonna just kick ass and everyone else is going to just like be totally trampled over and they're not going to fight back whatsoever because hey, why would they well, because and, our plan's perfect it's... yeah <laughs> and it's also one of those things of this plan takes a lot of liberties and makes a lot of assumptions yeah exactly um and so when schlieffen came into office he inherited the plans of moltke the elder and um walderis i think that's how you say it it's l-a it's w-l- D-E-R-E-S-E. Uh, I would personally pronounce as Valdris. Valdris? I'm guessing. That's know. just my best with... I don't know how to say anything in German. A couple years of high school German. That's my best. Um, all right. So when Schlieffen came into office, he inherited the plans of Moltke the Elder and um, Vald... Valdris. Valdris. <laughs> um, his predecessors acknowledged the... Um, advantage of using the Rhine against the French as an offensive um, buffer zone and then focusing the main strength in the east against Russia. But not to go so far east that they were in Russia because we all know how that went for Napoleon. Right. Yeah. Never start a ground <laughs> war with Russia. Which, again, don't want to get too ahead of myself, but foreshadowing. Um um, but Schlieffen was primarily a student of Moltke the Elder. The reason why I say Moltke the Elder is we mentioned another Moltke, which was Moltke the Younger. Um, this is how they're, the two individuals are uh, differentiated between. So Moltke the Elder was primarily um, influential during the 19th century. Yep. Um, so Schlieffen was primarily a student of Moltke, um, however, he lacked Moltke the Elder's foresight to adjust plans based upon the diplomatic spirit of his country. Um, and the main reason for this is Schlieffen didn't really care much for foreign affairs and primarily believed in force. And now this is a huge issue as we get into this. Mm -hmm. um, so at the time that this was starting to be formulated, this is basically about turn of a century. France is super duper weak uh i mean it wasn't super weak according to a lot of sources i read essentially <clears throat> if we're going european country rankings it's germany was number one because of their industry and military size britain's number two because of their military then it's like france and russia were kind of three and four and that's why they kind of made some deals behind the scenes years before because they're like hey we can't let germany get too powerful and we kind of sandwich germany so 
they weren't like super weak, but perceived. Yeah, they were perceived as as extremely weak. Um, but the Sleeper Plan identified certain weaknesses, and first was France was weaker than Germany, but was protected by fortresses, and so along the French border that they share with Germany, there's a whole chain of different fortresses that a that lay upon that that could be reinforced and so it makes it really difficult to invade through that line Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was always the the hitch in the plan for a lot of um german military minds they're like how are we going to get around these fortresses um and so that was the issue that part of the reason why like moltke the elder um, sought to focus on the eastern front rather than the western front is because he's like, I don't know how we're getting around these fortresses. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to deal with the fortresses, so we're just going to defend and deal with stuff over here. Um, Russia was also weaker than Germany, but was protected by great space. Russia is vast. There's a lot of land, and honestly, you could probably get very lost there if you don't know where you're going. Yep. Um, Germany's ally Austria was also weak, but could be used as a distraction uh, on the eastern side. Uh, Italy was basically useless, but allied and later discounted. Uh, And Britain could be ignored as Schlieffen had no interest in sea power and hated the Navy. Mm -hmm. Like, he really hated the Navy. So he didn't even count Britain as, like, a potential player. And for the most part, like, he was semi-correct in that just because britain had its own shit going on and had focuses elsewhere so like the assumption is that they wouldn't necessarily get involved because they were just too busy to reference the adventure zone (laughs) britain's kind of like taco or taco's just okay outside (laughs) it's a very niche reference that probably none of our audience is gonna get but you never know it could be a venn diagram (laughs) but um the Schlieffen plan was an all-or-nothing plan, and it completely discounted failure. Um, the plan ultimately differed from the previous plans that Schlieffen had in- inherited from his predecessors as it shifted the focus from the east to the west. Yep. It focused on attacking France over Russia, essentially. Um and initially, Schlieffen wanted to find a way to destroy the French fortresses, but he couldn't devise a way to do so. So instead, he uh, created a plan to go around the fortresses by violating Belgian neutrality and going through Belgium. It is important to note that Belgian neutrality is very important to, uh, well, Belgium, but also several other countries um, as its neutrality was guaranteed by Britain, France, and Prussia. Um, and it was the result of a treaty that I don't remember the name of. Alright, so it was the so Belgian neutrality was guaranteed by the Treaty of London, which was um, put into effect in 1839. And it was guaranteed jointly by Britain, France, and Prussia. And it was one of those things that you don't violate this thing lightly. Like, this this is going to get you in a heap of trouble by doing. It was kind of, at the time, I mean, Britain and France still had a little bit of shaky ground between the two of them. So they kind of had guns pointed at each other. But France and Ger- Prussia, later Germany, had guns pointed at each other. So there's kind of that. But then Germany and and uh, the uh, Britain both kind of had a rivalry there. So they're all kind of, it's a Mexican standoff between the three of them. And it's like, okay, if you violate, the two of us are going to go after you. If you violate, two of us, and so on and so forth. 
um, the, all right. So the Schlieffen plan was supposed to bring about victory in 42 days. It was a lightning war. It was supposed to go super duper fast. Um, so the, the basic gist of the plan and like, I'm, there's probably like whole chapters of books just like explaining the, um, the intricacies of this plan, but we're going to go for the spark notes. And so the gist of it is that a majority of the German army was to march through Belgium to reach the French frontier by day 22. And then by day 31, the German line was to run along the Somme and Meuse rivers to be able to advance on Paris. So they're essentially making this left hook around the fortresses and Mm. into France. And then um, from there, they'd be able to advance on Paris and then they would defeat the French in a decisive battle and the war would be over by day 42. Um, And it was supposed to be like, bam, 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 bam. They never saw it coming. Um, But there's a lot of flaws in the Schlieffen plan. Um, And one of them is that the assumption that attrition could be entirely avoided. And part of that is that they continued to believe that France would just lay down and take it. Yeah. (laughs) They'd start to invade France and all the French people go, oh, no. Yeah. Like they like one of the assumptions is that French would just like lie down and take it. The other assumption is that Britain wouldn't get involved yeah. even though they violated Belgian neutrality. Yeah. Um, is that like they just thought like Britain thought it was of itself so hoity toity and above it all they just would ignore that? Like I don't They were I mean they were concerned with their own empire and you know, opium yeah, wars busy. and all that shit. Were the open wars at that point? Doesn't matter. Point they being, were busy. They were doing horrible <laughs> shit in the rest of the world, so um, and so I'd assume that France would always be weak and that Britain would not get involved. Um, though even within the notes of the great memorandum of, uh, 1905, which is the completed version of the Schlieffen plan, Schlieffen considered the possibility of a great, greater than predicted French resistance, which would cause, which was the basically his biggest fear because that is what would cause attrition of like if France fought and if they retreated behind um, a couple of other French rivers that they couldn't get through. Yeah. Um, And then there's also places within the plan where like instructions are not clear, like exactly how the German army was supposed to take Paris. It just was like, they'll get there. Ta-da. But it doesn't really say how. You just march in and say, the city's ours. And the French people would go, oh, no. And then it just happened. Yeah. Um, it also assumed a marching pace of 12 miles a day. Like, there's a lot of math involved in this plan as well. Um, and ultimately, like, m- pretty much every army involved, like, went way faster than that. They, like, were averaging 16 miles a day. So, like, the whole thing is off just from that standpoint. Yeah. That's, like, even with the technology that was available then that hadn't been available before. What the hell? Um, even with the technology that was available then that had never been available before, that is a breakneck pace. That is impossible to do with all the moving parts because essentially from what I understand about the Schlieffenplan, it 
looked at the German army as an object, not as a group of human beings and, you know, logistical supply trains and and all that stuff. Like, it didn't account for the fact that soldiers might need to sleep a little bit more. Well, and it also operated on a limited amount of soldiers as well. And while it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that Schlieffen didn't want to increase the numbers um, for, like, enacting the plan, uh, just because, like, his concerns about, like, there just literally wouldn't be room for people in certain areas was correct. Like, that is actually, like, he did make the correct choice on that. But if he had more people, it would have been easier to overwhelm. Mm Mm-hmm as well and so that's also one of the flaws that does come through though his decision not to increase uh soldier numbers was not necessarily wrong either so that's kind of like one of those ah type sections of the plan but overall like the schlieffen plan was full of wishful thinking and was flawed from the start and even like after he retired he kept like tweaking and messing with it and even like there's notes in it where he even admits that the plan is flawed Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like one of those things of like if you're reading this plan just kind of like as a rough overview or just kind of like skimming it like you're gonna miss a lot of those things and that's ultimately i think is what happened but it was however flawed it was it was pigeonholed nonetheless and was just saved for later um and then for france at the time that the Schlieffen plan was being written, the assumptions about France were correct. Uh, and Because it essentially relied on France protecting their fortress border. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time that it was being written, that like that's exactly what they were doing. Their initial war plans were um, focused on fortifying that French border and... Their main concern was getting enough soldiers because they were very intimidated by just the sheer mass of the German army and how many people they could just acquire and uh, mobilize. And so France was very concerned about even just getting an army army big enough to defend the fortresses. Mm-hmm. Um, however, this issue was solved by the conscription law of 1905, which required uh, two years of military service from all Frenchmen. And then um, by 1911, the way France was preparing for a war also changed um, as it was the French chief of staff, Victor um, Mikel. Um, He proposed a radical departure from the previous plans that France had, which mostly focused on defending those fortresses he actually had the foresight to be like i think germany would probably go through belgium like i wouldn't put it past him to go through belgium we should you know use all these reserves and go the other way Mm -hmm. and basically protect yeah protect the whole french line is essentially what he was thinking and basically started coming up with a plan that was almost like a reverse Schlieffen plan. Right. Protect your weak points. Um, To protect your weak points and utilize all these reserved soldiers. Um, But ultimately that didn't really come to 
fruition just because he was kind of ousted because he was radical and no one really liked him. Yeah. Um, but the ultimate plan that was adopted um, was plan um, 17. And so it was adopted for a couple of different reasons. One was like the absence of confirmed intelligence that Germany would for sure go through Belgium. Like if they had known about the um, great memorandum of 1905, they probably wouldn't have ousted this guy. (laughs) And they would have gone with his plan because they're like, yeah, they're going to go through Belgium. But it was kind of one of those things of like they didn't have any intelligence that confirmed it. And it also, they were just like, there's no way they're going to violate Belgian neutrality. The plot twist, they do it multiple times. (laughs) But yeah, they doubted that Germany would make such a huge risk and go through Belgium. Also, um, to some degree, French intelligence, the, the French intelligence bureau ignored certain signs that that is exactly what they were planning on doing. Right. It, yeah. And it, to look at the French government at the time, they were still trying to figure some things out. So you have, like, I believe it was the president, and then you had, like, a prime minister. Yeah, because they're then, uh, a dual system. Yeah. And then they have the uh, parliament, right? Because they have mm-hmm. parliamentary. Yeah. And then you have, like, a bunch of other local government people. And they all have to get together and confer and talk things over and debate and do all these things. Meanwhile, in Germany, you have the Kaiser and then you have the overseers of the military. And ultimately what the Kaiser says goes, but his overseers also aren't scared to tell him, shut the fuck up, stop meddling with our plans. And he's just like, okay, fine, do what you got to do. But the decisions are made a lot more swiftly. Whereas in France, there's a lot of, I think this, no, I think this. And there's a lot of debate. I'm not saying one's necessarily better than the other. Just one takes longer. Yeah. And one of the other reasons why this plan was put, was adopted instead of the others is also Germany also had established a conscription law as well. So they still ultimately had less manpower. Yeah. Um, and so that was a deterrent of just going on a complete offensive. Um, but the final reason why France went with Plan 17 was because they were developing better relations with other countries, such as Britain. They were on way better terms with Britain than they ever had been before. And so they essentially got Britain to semi-confirm that if the if belgian neutrality was violated they would come to france's aid yeah it was kind of sort of a it was like a would you do that for us and they're kind of like perhaps i wouldn't not do that and france is like good enough for us yeah yeah and so they went with a plan where essentially france would attack through their shared border and attack germany and essentially it's mostly to distract whatever they were planning on doing through Belgium and then Britain, they believed would help reinforce that line um, that shared between Belgium and France. Yeah. Um, they also, to an extent, relied on the um, assistance of Russia. However, Russia um, was a lot slower to, um, to get going and confirm that they were going to do anything if anything ever happened. Um, And 
both France and Russia had the issue of being slow to um, organize troops from their reserves. France was mostly because they just didn't know how to do it. They didn't have a plan logistically on how to do it. Russia is just gigantic. It and just, a hot mess. It's gigantic, a hot mess, and it takes a while to get from point A to point B via train because it's just a long train ride. Yeah. Um, just as all this is happening in West Germany, you just kind of go, meanwhile, in East Germany, and you just hear a muffled, rah, rah, <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> but the main point of France going on the offensive was to be a distraction to wait on Russia to mobilize. So while France is distracting Germany, Russia is given the time to get everyone from all of the different corners of their giant-ass country to mobilize and help them. Yeah. And Russia, at this point, had spent most of uh, 1906 and through 1914 procrastinating on whether to fully commit to backing France. And part of this was just because during those earlier years, they were still recovering from the Russo-Japanese War. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge thing in, like, kind of how they... A lot of their war planning and even diplomacy, to an extent, is... Because they're recovering from that war. Because it hurt them so badly. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're recovering from the war and the revolt. Yeah, so it took essentially like several years for Russia to get back into a fighting type position. And when they did finally um, come to like confirm with France, yeah, I'm going to back you in the event that this happens... It's about 1913, and they've recovered at this point enough that they can do this. And they committed to supporting France on for a couple of reasons. One, like, their army finally recovered. Two, there is some misleading intelligence. And then three Russian military leaders just basically were like, fuck it, we won't lose. Yeah. <laughs> How could we? Yeah, they just basically were like, we're not going to fail. Basically... <laughs> I mean, if, if we want to summarize all this up, not that you're done, but if we wanted to summarize all this up from every country, it's how could we lose? We are X, Y, or Z country. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, I'm not even done on this shit because, like, we got to get to Austria. Oh, yeah. And so, meanwhile, in Austria, the Austrian chief of staff, Konrad von um, Holzendorf, um, had concerns that um the about the threat of war with both Russia and Serbia um as their allies were not particularly that useful yep because they were allied with Italy and Romania which weren't particular uh military powers at that point um and so they had ultimately like they always did want to go to war against Serbia but like they didn't want to commit to it because of the threat of Russia becoming involved. Yep. Um, but when German chief of staff Moltke the Younger, this dude, um, took over for Schlieffen um, after 1906, actual constructive negotiation between Germany and Austria be began. And this is about 1909. And so they actually started to talk and come up with plans. And the gist of the plan is basically how to deal with a Russian offensive. <laughs> and 
something that, again, from my research, part of those negotiations came on the mutual hatred and racism towards Slavic people. Yep. Um, the Germans and Austrians were both like, hey, <laughs> we're both, uh, you know, superior to these Slavs over here who are a slightly different shade of white and live in the same climate and areas as us. Uh, let's work together to oppress them. And it was like, all right, cool. Um, so that, that was part of it. I'm not saying that's the only piece of it, but that was part of it. Yeah, and so, like, the main thing that, like, Mulca the Younger did was assure um, von Holzendorf that they would back them in a war against Russia and basically help them stay strong against Russia in the event that they went to war. Um, And, like, the main thing that, in making those plans... What Moltke did not count on was the intervention of the British. And so, like, Britain is in a very luxury position because they are an island nation. Mm -hmm. They kind of can choose whether or not to be involved, though if they are attacked directly, they're kind of screwed. But most people wouldn't really bother with that (laughs) because they are huge naval power as well. Uh, so with Britain, um, they just basically kind of like they could engage or not engage as little or as much as they wanted to. But with um, conversations between them and France, they began to basically plan to aid France in that, though they did not admit to it until basically right before the war. <laughs> they didn't yeah. commit to anything, but they did have plans for it. But, like, the main, like, issue in all of these plans, though, is the fact that the branches of the governments and the military aren't talking to one another. Because you have all of these different chiefs of staffs and stuff making all these plans. They're not telling their monarchs or their prime ministers about this until it's, like, the day of kind of stuff. They're not telling them what the plans are. Um, The diplomats have no idea what's going on. And so, like, you have all of these different issues and one of the points that like John Keegan brings up at the end of this chapter where he talks about this is that later in the 20th century you have a huge increased communication between powers so that like in the Cold War you can immediately like organize a summit or organize a phone call between different countries and stuff to prevent the outbreak of war. Yeah. Meanwhile, here you don't have that, but also you have the issue where you have a leader of a country who doesn't necessarily know what the crap everyone else is doing. And also everyone else doesn't know what the other is doing. Yeah. Um, they had telegram though. They did have telegram. Yes. But it takes a while for documents and everything to get to you. And also they don't necessarily come in the right order. Yeah, and they were usually, like, hand-delivered anyway. Yeah. And also at this time, there was, like, no particular desire to come up with a more efficient way of communication between countries either. Because, like, during the Cold War, it's like, yeah, we're going to come up with a way so we can all talk whenever because we'd like to not be nuked. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, with this, they're just like, ah, there's no one really wanted to bother with making something more efficient. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so that mood was absent not only from uh, diplomacy, but also government. So basically just like no one felt the need to increase communication between branches and the government. Um, like you have France and Britain who were better off as they did have war councils that brought in different departments together. So for example, um, except like Britain's Royal Navy, for example, kept its own council separate from the Committee of Imperial Defense, but they did have two different councils and the latter had a different departments on it and different people within the government on that particular thing. So you didn't have, you had a little bit more communication. Uh, France was kind of similar as well with their council as well. But in like Germany, Russia, and Austria, there's a huge break in communication because you have a sovereign and each of the branches of government reports directly to that sovereign, not to each other. Yeah. So they can keep all their secret, secret plans secret from everyone else. Yep. Which doesn't help anybody in the long run. Yeah, and then like one of the main points that Keegan brings up in this this part other than that is um you also have the fact that you have a monarch who took less and less interest in military matters and was unlikely to interfere with anything that the military was doing um while in like presidential systems and stuff like you can't really you're you're elected you're you have an interest that's like the whole point you got elected (laughs) You're interested in, like, your country's welfare, while when you're born into it, you're like, ah, I think I'll go on a vacation. Yeah. Everyone goes on vacation. Um, <laughs> but then aside, um, but there's a quote at the end where it's like, the Kaiser in practice did not the crisis of 1914, uh, when he might have put the brakes on the... Ex- inexorable progression of the Schlieffen plan. He found that he did not understand the machinery he was supposed to control, panicked, and let a piece of paper control events. Yeah. So as, as I was saying earlier, with that, he he was kind of like, hey, like, maybe we shouldn't go after France. It just seems like a bad idea to send all of our force against France and leave us barely protected against Russia. And uh, Moltko was just like, no, can't we can't. We just can't change the course of plans because we would, we're not able to move all of those troops from west to east. We're just not able to. Things are in motion that just can't be undone. And Kaiser Wilhelm just didn't know enough and just wasn't sure enough about that whole situation. And he was like, okay, uh, go ahead and do it. So the final thing we're covering today, uh, we're going to talk about, I mean, part of what these people were planning with. And also what made World War One so bloody. Um, there were inventions and tactics that were developed in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, mass production made these weapons more readily available, allowed nations to mobilize large forces in relatively short time. Some inventions uh, to note that came before the beginning of the Great War and helped shape the battlefield are, and a note on this before I start listing them, these are the things that became before. I know there are inventions during and inventions that were deployed towards the end that helped advance the end. These are just before. So, the airplane. The Wright brothers achieved flight on December 17th, 1903. The Wright company, owned by the Wright brothers, uh, went on to mass produce the Model B airplane from 1910 to 1914. It's the first widely mass produced airplane in the world. 
other countries and manufacturing companies followed suit. Um, then there's the machine gun or the Maxim gun, which was invented in 1884 by Hiram Maxim. This is a water-cooled machine gun. It used recoil to reload as opposed to the crank of a Gatling or a puckle gun. Uh, there's the flamethrower, um, and while there were tons of iterations, I mean, even going back to, you know, they talk about Greek fire um, way back in ancient Greece and, and you know, all that kind of area and time period. Um, they, the modern flamethrower can be attributed to sort of the innovations of Richard Fielder in 1901. Uh, this design was further adapted for combat by the Hungarian Sakats, I believe is his name. Um, and of course, in World War I, this, the flamethrower was first used in combat on February 26, 1915 at Verdun. Then of course we had submarines. Uh, these were first motorized. You know, there were subs and bathyspheres and all sorts of diving bells, things like that before this, but the first motorized submarines were made between 1863 and 1904, and during that same time period is when they were also first equipped with weapons uh, for military use. And again, while this is not necessarily one invention, modern manufacturing, machining, and building practices greatly increased, increased the effective range and accuracy of artillery, which played a big part of World War I. Um, so we've kind of set the stage, and this is kind of how things will begin when we get into that. Um, we'll add some more context to some of these dates. We'll put some more detail in in our next episode um, and I mean that's all we have for this week at the moment yeah like I it's mostly because like I want to spend a little bit more time specifically on the crisis of 1914 um, because a lot of intricate things happened in the leading up point to the war itself and as I said at the beginning of this episode, a lot of people just kind of simplify it to just the treaties, yeah. and it's so much more than that. We'll probably ultimately start with the treaties before we even get into the assassination and the um, situation that even created um, circumstances for the assassination. Um, but we'll we'll kind of leave it here because we also didn't want to like over load you in, in episode one as well mm -hmm. um, so that's that's where we're going to leave off for now um, we're going to keep going with this we're going to try and get another episode out maybe in November we'll see we're going to be a little bit busy this month but we'll see what not, we can do not as busy as December <laughs> yeah December is going to be rough rough but we're going to try and get out one, maybe two episodes then. Just depends. Um, but we're going to be talking about World War One for a little while. For a couple months. Yeah. So <laughs> this is a big topic. Be patient with us. 
Uh, we're still both working full-time jobs and there's some other things going on behind the scenes in our personal lives that were just like that take time and like we're trying to lose COVID weight um, you know we, we have just like the world's opening up after COVID so it's like now we're busy again and we have family events and things to attend everyone's vaccinated now and it's a whole multitude of things but long story short um, we're busy this takes a lot of research I mean this was probably what three four weeks yeah, just on this episode alone, it took us I, probably about, like, two and a half weeks yeah. of going to the coffee shop and just sitting down and reading and annotating and stuff. But and that's like, not to mention the documentaries we watched. watched and, yeah. yeah. Um, so so it's, it's it takes a long time. And plus, like, my own methods. So I'd, like, revisiting, like, how I do notes and get through books. I was like, yeah, this is why, like, upper-level history classes kicked my ass. It takes me so long to get through shit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so be patient with us and we hope that, uh, you enjoy the ride and we hope that you enjoy this series. Um, go ahead and follow us on Instagram if you'd like. That's our primary form of communication, uh, I guess communication, social media, whatever. That's our primary form of getting information out to people. Um, you can subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Um, if you would like to, you could go to, if you're using Apple, uh, podcasts, you can leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Um, that really helps us out and yeah, uh, we, we appreciate you listening. So that's all I have for now. You have anything to say? I know that's, that's about it for me too. All right. Well, next time on, (laughs) I guess. This has been a Strangely Dangerous production. Stay strange. Stay dangerous.